Years ago, uh, some of you might remember, uh, how many of you remember back to the days when I would start a sermon with a joke? Do you remember that? Yeah. Um, I stopped doing it for a couple of reasons. First of all, because I didn't want it to become boring to anybody, you know, the same old, same old. And then secondly, I didn't want anybody to ever think that we are treating the Word of God or the preaching of the Word of God as a light or cavalier thing. Uh, and I hope that you know that is never my heart. But I did feel like I wanted to kind of resurrect that today, specifically. So I want to start off with a joke. And by definition, please hear me, by definition, a joke is not true. It's not real, okay? If I lay that groundwork. Okay, here's the joke, very simply. Some years ago, Kathy Maurer, was our church secretary. And she received a call one morning, and the caller was a man, and he said, I'd like to speak to the head hog at the trough. Well, naturally, Kathy, who respects her pastor, was appalled and offended at the way in which he worded such a request. And she said, well, if you mean Pastor Chris, then you're going to have to show him the respect he deserves and call him pastor. The caller paused for a moment. He says, well, I'm sorry, because I had intended to call and donate $100,000 to the church. She paused for a moment and said, just one moment, Porky's just walked in the door. <laughs> okay. I was looking at old pictures. Well, we are down to the last three chapters in the Gospel of John, and it's been quite an adventure. Uh, what's really interesting to me <coughs> is that as I thought about it this week, I felt like I saw something I hadn't seen before in terms of the flow of the Gospel. It feels like the Gospel itself, as it flows from chapter to chapter, actually captures something of the essence of many of our lives. I mean, think about it. It starts out on such a high note. In the beginning, before there was time itself, in the beginning was the Word. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, from the very beginning. And from there, for the next two and a half to three years of Jesus' life, John lays out some of the adventures and exciting things that happened that Jesus did. And that he said, you remember, you remember when he turned water into wine and then he walked on it, that kind of a thing. I mean, it's pretty exciting stuff that goes on. Or when he looks at a woman and he says, yeah, you're right. You're not married. I can tell. You've had five husbands. You look pretty beat up. I mean, that kind of a thing. He was able to cut to the chase so well throughout all of it. But now we come to chapter 19. And the tone changes just a little bit. Um, for us, when I got saved, I don't know about you, but when I got saved, I was excited. Were any of you guys excited when you first got saved? Did, did things feel like they shifted for you a little bit? Like life looked and felt differently? Well, that's kind of how I see the first, you know, 10, 15 chapters of the Gospel of John. Exciting stuff going on. Every day it's a new adventure, getting to know him more and more. But then we come to chapter 19 and things aren't as warm and fuzzy anymore. It doesn't feel as exciting anymore. Hard things begin to happen. And they leave the disciples feeling a bit down and disappointed, a bit discouraged, even a bit depressed. And if I could sum it all up, they leave the disciples feeling confused. And my question to you this morning is, have you ever felt that way about life? Has life ever thrown you a curve that has left you feeling confused? Like, I didn't think it was supposed to be this way. I thought it was supposed to be better than that. I thought once I got saved, once I became, became a Christian, Jesus was supposed to fix all my problems. Everything was supposed to go smooth. Everything was supposed to be a bed of roses from that point on. I, I don't know if you've ever felt that way. I certainly have. That 
life didn't work out the way I planned, the way I thought that it would. And maybe for you, you thought you'd be married by now. And it's been one disappointment after another. Or maybe you've actually gotten marriage, thinking that marriage would fix all your problems, and you found out it didn't. That actually sometimes marriage brings its own set of problems. Or maybe for you it's in the parenting arena. Um, maybe you're doing the best you can every single day to parent your children, to see them raised in the way that you think they ought to be, but in your heart of hearts you're wondering constantly, am I blowing it? Am I going to have to pay for my kids' counseling because of the things that I've done and said? Or maybe for you it's <clears throat> in the area of finances. You feel like you're struggling constantly just to break even, let alone to try to get ahead. He said he's going to supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And he said, where's the glory? Where's the riches? I feel like we barely make it. Or maybe for you, it's your health has you stymied and confused. You lose weight and you get in better shape only to end up injured and reeling, trying to get back at it. I don't know who that might be for. Um, <clears throat> have you ever thought as you aged that these are called your golden years? What happened to the gold? Yeah. I, I think they should be called the iron years because everything's rusting. Has life ever left you feeling confused? I, I don't know about you, but... I feel sometimes like life throws me a curve and it doesn't seem like it should be that way. It seems like things should be better than what they are. On almost every front that you can imagine, I want my marriage to be better. I want my parenting of my adult children to be better. I want my parenting and my pastoring to be better. And it is, to quote a friend of mine, it is what it is, except for he does it with his New York City accent. It is what it is, Chris. Um, I want us to read a portion of Scripture that is lengthy, but I think it captures well something of what I feel about life sometimes. And I suspect that some of you do as well. Um, please remember, you're hearing these words already knowing the end of the story, but I'm going to ask you to try really hard to hear them with fresh ears, to see them with fresh eyes, and to try to think, what was it that the disciples might have felt during this whole time? So would you turn to John 19, if you're not there already, and remember, they knew who Jesus was. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Peter had already declared it. Thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So they already knew who he was. And look at what happens to him. John 19, would you follow along with me in your Bibles if you have them? If not, they're on the screen in front of you. So then, Pilate took Jesus and he scourged him. What, what's the word scourged mean? What? Whipped or uh, flagged him, that kind of a thing. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. By the way, doesn't this just, isn't there a part of you just dies every time you read these words? That they would treat Jesus this way. Can't read these words without thinking, Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid because he understood something that maybe we don't always catch. 
the Romans of that day had a title for Caesar. And his title was Son of God. And all of a sudden, once the Jews begin to say that Jesus is the Son of God or calls himself the Son of God, it takes it to another whole level. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you speaking to me? Do you not know? Are are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one, not the ones, the one, he's now talking about Lucifer himself who moved upon the heart of the people, the one who delivered me to you as the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes him a king, makes himself a king, speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and they led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from from the top in one piece. They said therefore among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, for whose it is shall be, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was the high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, 
asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And there they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was empty. And that's how it all ends. Jesus Christ, the Savior of Israel, the Messiah of God's people, the Son of God, God in the flesh, killed on a cross and stuck in a tomb. The end, finished, fini, kaput. Where is the upside of the story? As we read it today, where's the good in this? To me, as I read this account, I was reminded of Luke chapter 24 when the two on the road to Emmaus were walking with Jesus post-resurrection. And they're telling Jesus what they were feeling. And remember, at one point, they were talking about Jesus and said, we hoped, we hoped that he was the Messiah who would redeem Israel. The obvious implication is, apparently he wasn't because they killed him and they laid him in a tomb. That's how the disciples were feeling at that time. Now, to be fair, even though I asked you to read this with fresh eyes and fresh ears, the truth is, like Paul Harvey used to say, you already know the rest of the story. You already know that, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that had the principalities and powers understood what they were doing when they did it, they never would have crucified the Son of God. You knew that. But what I want you to catch is what were the disciples feeling during this time? And I think sometimes they feel much like we do in our lives. Like things aren't working out the way I thought they would. The way I thought they should. The way I thought God even had said that they would. They're not working out right at all. And I want to suggest to you that even in the hard stuff, God has a plan. How many of you have felt like me that in the last several weeks there have been some really hard things that have come down the track? That you've had to deal with some really challenging situations in your life? Maybe about you personally, maybe in relationships you have, or maybe you've had to help some people walk through some hard things. But as you look at stuff in your own life especially, so let's not put it on anybody else. As you look at stuff in your own life, How many times have you been faced with things that you just didn't understand? Things that have left you confused. Things that have left you discouraged. And maybe even a little afraid. What I'm talking about this morning is, in the simplest term I could come up with, is our need for unconditional trust unconditional, unequivocal, unqualified, unrestricted, absolute trust. Trusting God in all things. And you know and I know that it's so much easier to trust God when everything's going well. You know, when somebody looks at how you've raised your kids and they think you did okay and they come and they see you and they say, you know, I I just feel like I'm struggling as a parent. Can you tell me? And you, because you're trying to be so humble about it, say, well... It's all the grace of God and you just have to trust God and believe it will all work out. But in your heart of hearts, you're thinking glory to me. You're thinking, I did it right. If you would do it right, you would get right. But when things aren't going well, when it's your kid that's struggling, when it's your marriage that's struggling, when it's your job that is threatened, when it's your finances that are too low, it's a little bit more challenging to trust God in those moments. It's far easier to trust God when everything is going great and it's sunny and warm outside. Haven't you found it easier to feel more love for God when it's nice out than it's rainy and gloomy and cold? 
trust, trusting, or let me, let me word it this way. I think worrying is natural. Trusting is counterintuitive. Trusting goes against the grain. It's far easier for us, even in our prayers, to worry. I've listened to some of you guys pray over these years. I would never do it myself, of course. But some of your prayers aren't prayers at all. It's you complaining to God. It's you worrying out loud toward God, but really you're just fretting. And again, I would never have done that, because I'm better than that. You should hear some of my prayers when I'm out on my walks. We say things like this, well, when things change, when my marriage is better, when I get married, when we finally have that baby, when my finances improve, when my health improves, then I will trust God. But I want you to hear this next statement. At heart, what that's saying, please hear this, what that's saying is, God, when you meet my demands and my expectations, then I will trust you. Because you have expectations. You have criteria you want to lay before God. God, when this happens, then I will know. Then I will trust you. Then I will love you. And I will suggest to you that that's conditional trust. And our challenge is to move away from conditional trust to unconditional trust. Um, think about it for a moment. How many of you parents have had to ask your kids to trust you with something? When they thought what you were going to do was going to kill them. <laughs> How many of you parents have ever had to take a sliver out of your kids' hands? How many times, I mean, for us, it was like a full-on two-court press. I would hold them with all of my might, my feet around them, holding their legs. I would put my arms, hold their arms, hold their hand out there, and they're trying, they're squirming for all the way. And Cameron's thinking, you would think we were killing them. <laughs> and we're saying, trust me, it's better for you if we take it out now before it festers and it gets worse. And you say, yeah, that's easy, Pastor. Those are kids, but I'm not a kid. I'm a grown-up. I can think for myself. Let me ask you honestly, how much do you know compared to the infinite, almighty, eternal God? What makes you think that compared to Him, you would know what's better and what's right? Do you think it's possible God might know some things you don't know? Might have some wisdom that you don't have? Um... My question is this, are you mature enough to accept God's answer to your desires and prayers even when they aren't working out the way you hoped for? Are you that mature? Real faith is about trusting God even when it doesn't make sense. Real faith is about trusting God even when it doesn't make sense to you. There will always be things in our lives that we don't understand. But real, deep, tried in the fire, unconditional trust is not about the results. It's about the heart. Can you trust God's heart that he has only good in mind for you and that he's actually working good out in your life? We, we love Romans 8. We love it. For all things, oh, what was it again? Oh, yeah. Wait, for, did he really mean all? He can't. Because haven't there been things that happened to your life that weren't good? Hmm. Do I believe the Bible or don't I? For he causes all things to work together for good. Now, I'm not suggesting at all that all things are good. He didn't say all things were good. He says he causes all things to work for good. Can you trust that the sovereign God of all of the earth has your best interests at heart? Can you trust that? 
so that when you're going through things, it gives you then a different perspective. I am not suggesting, by the way, that God causes bad things to happen. I'm not suggesting for one second that God causes diseases or abuse or anything like that to happen in order to teach us a lesson. What I'm suggesting is even that bad stuff God can use. He can use in our lives to help us to grow up. I can remember years ago, uh, Kavern will probably remember this because I think we've talked about it since then. <clears throat> we were in a church up in Calcium, New York, and we had a Wednesday night prayer meeting. Uh, we were doing a study on First Thessalonians at the time. I happen to remember that. And when we would get done with our study, every single Wednesday night, we would have a time of prayer. And I would ask people for prayer requests. And I can remember we had one young couple that had just started coming to church. They were children of another older couple in the church. And they started coming to church, and they'd been there for several weeks. And they raised their hands and said, Pastor, we would like you to pray that God would help us to get this house that we've put an offer on that we want. So would you please pray that God would give us that house? When I prayed, however, I prayed something like this. God, I pray that if this house that so-and-so and so-and-so are thinking about buying and have put an offer on, that if this house is the best situation for them and is in the center of your will and heart for them, I pray you would give it to them and break down every barrier that would oppose them. But God, if it is not your will or desire for them to have that house, I pray you would close every single door so firmly that no one could open it. Amen. They left the church over that prayer. They left the church because I didn't pray that God would do what they wanted. Now, you look at that story and you say, come on, they've got to be pretty immature, weren't they? But how many times have we done the same thing ourselves? We want things a certain way. And when we don't get it, we get depressed. We get discouraged. We get upset. We begin to fret. We begin to figure out how to make it happen. And the truth is, if we're honest, we're no different than that couple. We have our wants and our desires, and I want it my way, and I want it right now. Now, it's not wrong to let God know what it is that you would like to have happen or what you would want in your life. I'm not saying don't pray for stuff. I'm saying at heart, when you pray for stuff, can you pray in such a way that opens the door for God to do what he would like, what he knows is best? Is he God or not? Can you be content in life if you don't get what you want, what you pray for? Can you be happy or are you going to walk around depressed all the time because you don't get what you want? If we have to have that thing, I would suggest to you that thing has become your idol, your God. Okay, uh, let me say that again. If there is something in your life that you absolutely have to have, regardless of anything else, I don't care what anybody says, I don't care what God thinks, I have to have this, that thing has become your God. You've bowed down to that. And that's a dangerous place to live. I think it's far better to say something like this, God, I would really, really like this. I would like to be able to shoot a 72 on a round of golf. I just made that up because it will never happen. I would like to shoot a 72 shot round and I would like to do it with a bunch of people watching and if possible, I would like a birdie, an eagle, a turkey, and a hole-in-one in the same round. But, God, if that never happens, I'm okay with it. I'm going to live happy. I'm going to live content. I'm going to live at peace. I'm going to live trusting you regardless. Now, I just picked a ridiculous one. It would be better to say, God, I would like my feet to really stop hurting because every single day, it's an agony to walk. I'd like you to heal my feet. That's far closer to my heart and far more realistic for me. But God, even if the pain never goes away, I'm still going to trust that you know best. And you're going to...
going to give me grace to go through. I think his grace is sufficient. Jesus prayed this way in the garden in Matthew 26. My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. That's letting God know your desires. Nevertheless, however, but, not as I will, but as you will. That's unconditional trust. We read this morning what in the natural appeared to be, I believe, the most horrific, unjust, unfair thing that has ever happened on the earth. The perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God killed for no reason of his own. He did not do one thing wrong. He had never sinned. He had never done evil, but he was killed. He had never done anything to warrant his death. But hear me, you and I are the recipients of that today. The benefits of his death are our salvation, which says to me that even when hard things happen, it's possible God has a higher redemptive plan. Even when difficult things happen, it's possible that God can even use that for my good, even as he did with Christ. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 speaks about the fact that he had a thorn in the flesh. You guys will remember that. There's been all kinds of discussion throughout all of the generations about what that thorn in the flesh is. Some people think it was because he had bad eyes, because he wrote one of his letters and said, see with what large letters I write to you, and they think it's because he couldn't see, so that was his thorn. Others think it was relational struggles. Others think it was financial struggles. We don't know. But whatever it was, Paul tells us himself that he asked God three times to remove that thorn in the flesh. And he didn't just ask him kind of in a passing cavalier way, God, if you think about it, I would like it to be gone. The scripture says he pleaded with God three times to take it away. And God's answer was no. Simply no. My grace is sufficient for you even with this thorn in the flesh. My grace is sufficient. If God isn't removing what you want removed from your life or changing the situation you want changed the way you want, you don't have to get angry and bitter about it. It's possible for you to find that God always has sufficient grace for you even in that situation. If God's not removing it, maybe you ought to stop fighting with God about it and trust Him. I'm not saying stop praying. I'm saying when you pray, always let God manage your life the way he wants. Let God determine what's best for you. Sometimes the reason our prayers aren't answered because, is because of timing. Sometimes it's because God has something better for us than what we think is going to be best for us. And sometimes God just knows that if he lets us have what we want, it's going to be ultimate destruction for us. I feel like, for me, one of my prayers regularly is, God, this is really, really hard and I don't like it, and I want you to change it. But I trust you anyways. Whatever you want, God, I want. Your will be done in my life. And when we pray that kind of prayer, I think God's response is like Jeremiah 29, when God says, the thoughts that I have for you are thoughts of a hope and a future. God wants to plant hope in us that what we're going through isn't useless. Every single thing you go through, God can use to grow you up, to transform you more and more into his image. One of the things I've learned, uh, I'm, I'm not the oldest person here by any means, but one of the things I've learned over my years is this. Some of the greatest lessons I have learned and some of the biggest steps I have taken in my growth with God has come because of hard things. Not when things went well, but when things didn't go well. It drove me to God like nothing else. And I grew faster than when things were going wonderfully. Because when things are going wonderfully, you just kind of go through life, enjoying life on a bed of flowers and rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> you know, all those good things. But when things go hard, what do you do? You get on your face before God. And I think sometimes... 
God lets stuff happen in our lives. I'm not saying he creates it, but he lets it happen because it drives us back to him and a desire for him. If God in his infinite wisdom is not changing a specific situation in your life, I think you will find greater joy and greater peace if you stop fighting with God and instead you start trusting God. Say, God, I would love this on, but in the meantime, as I continue to lean into you in faith for this thing, I'm going to trust that you know best. You know best timing. You know everything that is best for us. So job changes, health changes, family changes. God is still sovereign and in control. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we know in part, we see in part. I think that's part of our problem. We're not seeing the whole picture, and God is. And that's why Paul says in Philippians, and I asked them to put this up here for you, Philippians 4, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am, whatever state I am, to be content. I know how to be abased. What's the word abased mean? Pardon? Lose everything. To be brought low. To be embarrassed. To not have what you think you should have. I've learned how to be abased. And I know how to abound. Oh, we like that much better. To exceed. To overflow. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned to be both full and to be hungry. I mean, he's even talking about simple things like going hungry for a while. How to abound and how to suffer need, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. A lot of times we do the I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me as a verse that's all about when I want to do some major task. And so, no, what he's talking about in the context is his strength is available to me when I'm abased, when I'm suffering, as well as when I'm abounding. But listen to what Paul says in verse 11. Go back to verse 11. I have learned. In other words, this wasn't automatic. Paul had to go through a school, and the school was some hard things that happened in his life. I have learned some things the hard way, and that's the principle we have to learn. We know that God is able to change things. He's all-powerful. He can do anything he wants. So if he doesn't, is it possible? Is it just possible he has a reason? Isn't that really what the three Hebrew children had to deal with? The king comes along and he creates an idol that is 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. And he tells everybody, at the sounding of the gong, I want you all to bow down and worship the idol. And these three Hebrew children refused. They were brought before the king. The king got angry about it and says, I'm going to give you one more chance. Bow down or else I'm going to kill you. I love their response. Their response was, listen, king, with respect, we're not even going to be careful about how we answer you. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to pray about it. Here's the thing. We're not going to bow down to your idol. We're not going to worship your God. We know our God is well able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we won't bow down. The scripture says that the king made the furnace that he was going to throw them into. He was so angry, he made the furnace seven times hotter, so hot that when the guards were ready to open the door and to throw the three, three Hebrew children in, they themselves were incinerated. They were killed. He throws them in, and after a while, I don't know if they had some sort of peak vent on it or what, maybe it died down a little bit, the king comes back to look to see if they were thoroughly barbecued yet. And when he looks in, he says, wait a minute, didn't we throw three in there? And they said, yes, king. He said, well, then why do I see four and the fourth looks like the son of God? Here's what I want you to get. God could have delivered them from the furnace, but he didn't. In the same way that he could have delivered Daniel from the lion's den, but he didn't. But God met with the three Hebrew children in the furnace. And he delivered them through the furnace. 
Sometimes God might miraculously deliver you from something, a consequence that you begged God to help you with. You've made a stupid decision. You begged God, and God changed the situation, and you're grateful for it. But it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes God takes you through high waters and through the fire. Our challenge this morning is the same as in John 19. Can you look at what happened on that faithful day when it looked like it was the end? And can you still trust God when things aren't going the way you thought they would? Solomon, that wise man, put it this way. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. All too often, our sense of fairness or justice or rightness even our mind and our rationale itself can be our biggest impediment to trusting God. But can you truly believe that God is actually directing your paths? He's directing your steps. Uh, I am getting closer and closer to the 60-year mark. Um, as I look back over my life, I was doing quite a bit of it this week, actually, as I look back over those almost 60 years, I realize that life, life did not come out the way I planned it. I'm not where I thought I would be doing what I thought I would be doing. I can remember when our family became Christians and we started going to church and I ended up going to Bible school. I can remember I had one prayer that I prayed consistently for all of those years. God, I will go anywhere for you. I can remember at a missions conference saying, God, I will go to Bangladesh for you. And I didn't even know where Bangladesh was. I will go anywhere for you. I will do anything for you. But this one thing, God, I never want to pastor. I wasn't joking. You laugh. I was not joking. I was 100% serious. I saw what the church did to my pastor, and I said, I never want to put myself through that. I'm not kidding. All throughout my life, I, I told God what to do for me, told him when to do it, what I needed, who to use, how to meet my needs. I gave God some great information. I gave him some amazing information wise advice and to my shock God never took me up on any of it he did what he wanted to do and I have to tell you after almost 60 years I have discerned something I've discovered something God's plans are better than mine what God has for my life is better than anything I could have envisioned he says in Corinthians, says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of the kinds of things God has planned for those who love him. I didn't have it all in my mind at the time. Honestly, my mind at the time was very simply this, just to kind of finish that story just a little bit. My thought was this, I wanted to marry Karen Edwards, and I wanted us to go live in a cabin in the Adirondacks on a mountain with enough food to live on and books to read for the rest of our lives and everybody else leave me alone. <laughs> that was my idea of the perfect life. And instead, God puts me in the middle of people. You. Isaiah puts it this way, Isaiah 55, 9, God speaking. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I can guarantee you this. If God had listened to me, I wouldn't be standing here today and I wouldn't be enjoying what I so gratefully enjoy today. The message is simple today, but it's foundational in our lives and honestly, it was born out of both the scripture, but so many things that I personally have dealt with this week and then dealing with different people in the church, hearing stories again and again. I felt like this is a word I needed to remind you, that this thing started with believing God. 
That's what faith is. It's believing God that what he said is true. And it's going to continue with faith. That's what trust is. It's believing God. It's believing God has a plan for your life. It's believing that God has your best interest at heart and that he's powerful enough to bring it to pass. It's not making it happen yourself. When you read John 19, you could come away with the idea that God's plans were powerless against the forces of darkness until you read the rest of the story. And then you realize God even used the forces of darkness for his plans. You know, they thought they had this thing all down. They thought if they could only kill him and put him in the grave, they were throwing a party in hell. And then the scripture says Jesus went down to hell itself. And he took from Satan the keys of death and hell. And he says, oh yeah, you remember that deed that Adam signed over to you back in the garden? I'd like it back. I just bought the property. The earth is now mine and all of its fullness. That's what Jesus did for us. God was able to work those plans. Can you believe that God has you right where he wants you and he hasn't lost control of your life? Can you believe that for your marriage, for your kids, for your job, for your finances, for your health, and for whatever else it is that you might be facing, can you believe that God hasn't lost track of you and he still has everything in control? I said at the beginning, uh, I don't know what it is that you're facing today. I don't know what situations you face that might be a challenge to your faith, to your trust. But I want to encourage you today, just as in John 19, we finish with Jesus dead and in a grave, but that's not where the story ends. And where you're at right now is not where the story ends. God has more for you than that. He has given you a future. And then he's planted inside of every one of your hearts hope that things are going to be okay. He's actually going to give you what he promised you, an abundant life. Now, let's be reasonable. Some of the stuff I've wanted for my life was me and my youthful immaturity. And God didn't give it to me, and I'm thankful today he didn't. But I still think it's okay to ask God. Say, God, I'd like that. I really would. I don't think God is threatened by your request. I don't think God thinks less of you because you ask something. He might not give you your way because he knows he's got something better for you. But I think it's okay to ask. I think it's good to ask. When our grandkids come to see us, almost the first thing that they do is they ask Grandma for some sort of snack, like animal crackers or something like that. They want animal crackers, first thing. They've gotten to a point where they know where she keeps them, and they go and they point there, and Caleb will come in, and he'll say, you know, whatever. How, how does he say crackers? Crack, 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 whatever. And he'll point, and she'll know he wants crackers, and she'll give him some crackers. But, you know, there's going to come a point when she turns off the flow because too many crackers aren't good for anybody. God does the same kind of thing. He wants to bless us. He wants to encourage us, not by giving us our way, but by giving us his best. I want to end today by just challenging with something. So I'm going to ask if you would just kind of bow your heads for a moment and close your eyes. I want to give you an opportunity to stop complaining, to stop moaning and groaning about your lot in life. To say to God the truth, God, I have things I would like to see change, but Your will be done. I want to give you an opportunity to make a faith declaration to the Lord. To do it not as some victim that's cringing on the floor, but as a victor that stands before God and says, God, I'm your child. You're going to do right by me. You're going to do your perfect plan in my life. God, I know you can change this situation, and I ask you just to do that. But even if you don't, I will love and trust you. And I will not bow down, even to my own preferences and desires, 
You are God most high, and I will trust you. That's what this is about today. Can you trust God when life leaves you confused? Can you trust God when it doesn't make sense? Now just take a moment and make in, in your own heart, make that as your declaration. I'm going to ask the worship team if they'd come back up at this point. You keep pressing into the Lord. As I said, I don't know what your situation is. I don't want to presume anything. But I believe, uh, even as I prepared and all week long, as I would walk and pray, I felt more and more that this was a word for this house today. And I believe it's a word for you. Not for your neighbor, but for you. For you personally. I'm asking you to take it to heart. Don't just slough it off and be ready to move on. I want you to take it to heart. God, I give you my life. I trust you. I know hard things have happened in my life, things that should not have perhaps happened that were wrong. <laughs> <coughs> and that even grieved the heart of God, but God is even able to use that. If that is your declaration today, God, I'm going to trust you with all of my heart. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to love you. I am not looking back. I'm not bowing down. I refuse to become depressed and discouraged because I don't get my way. I refuse to be so immature that I cannot learn to be content and at peace with you and with people because I don't get everything exactly as I want. If that's your heart cry today, you're saying, God, I want to stand. I want to stand for you. I'm going to ask you not only just to stand, I'm going to ask you to come forward to this open front area and just say, I'm making my stand. I'm like the three Hebrew children. I'm saying, I know God can change this situation, but even if he doesn't, I'm not going to bow down. I am going after God. I'm going to continue to let God know what it is that I would like, what I want, what I even think is his will. I want my marriage to be better. I think that's God's will. But God, in this process that you take us through to get there, I'm going to learn contentment. I'm going to learn how to be content in you, to be at peace with you, to trust you unconditionally. If that's your heart, I'm going to ask you just to stand and to come forward and say, that's me. I'm going to ask for those of you that come forward, just press into God. We're going to be singing a song. I've asked the elders and leaders to come forward. They're not going to pray for you specifically. They're not going to lay hands on you and pray long prayers. They're going to gently lay their hands as a way of sealing your declaration today. You know, it's good that we actually do something. It's not enough just to say in our hearts sometimes, yeah, okay, because then we go home and we get busy about stuff. Sometimes you actually have to make your body respond to the call of the Lord. Move forward, if you would, a little bit so they have room to come around behind you. The leaders just go back and lay hands on them. Again, you're not praying for them specifically. You're just sealing what it is as we sing this song together. If you want to sing as those who are making declarations, sing it. If you want to pray, pray. If you want to kneel, kneel. I don't care. Do what it takes for you to say, this is real to me. And with this world, you are the light that's beautiful. And I want more. 
unspeakable that won't go away. Have to worry that tomorrow will bring. My faith is on solid ground. I'm turning on God. Counting on, I'm counting on God. I'm counting on, I'm counting on God. that won't go away. Counting on God. I'm counting on, I'm counting on God. I'm counting on, I'm counting on God. I'm counting on, I'm counting on God. Amen. So, we're not going through life like we're somehow victims of the enemy's great power that's bigger than God. 
We're going through life knowing that our God, who is greater than all, has control of our lives, and He's working out His perfect plan in our lives. Amen? Amen. Good. God bless you. Now go do it. Go, go, go. Go, go.